Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into today's very interesting topic, some unfinished business, on Thursday, we uh, did a repeat broadcast of a uh, wonderful conversation I had uh, last year with uh, the uh, great writer Richard Russo. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, author of Empire Falls and other books. His latest book is Chances Are, set in uh, Martha's Vineyard uh, and uh, covers uh, three friends and a, and a mystery, also the Vietnam War era. And uh, so in response to that program, Steve has emailed us. He says, even back then, Martha's Vineyard was plenty she-she and expensive. During the early and mid-1970s, at the time when I was in my early and mid-20s, I spent several summers with my aunt and uncle at their place in Edgerton, Edgertown, rather, on Martha's Vineyard. The summer of 1975 was especially memorable because the movie Jaws, which had been shot on Martha's Vineyard, was premiered in the Edgerton Town Movie Theater in that summer, and people went nuts. Now, I haven't been back to the island for decades now, and I no doubt it has become even more shishi and expensive now than it was then, as your guest describes the change. But let your listeners be assured, even then, Martha's Vineyard was boku, shishi, and expensive. And then Steve goes on to say, what was your draft number, Tom? Um, well, Steve, I was, I'm uh, too young to have had a, a draft number. I, I was fell kind of in the middle there, so... Um, I was of the generation just after, so I did not have a draft number. Steve goes on to say, um, mine was 228, which had previously been my laundry number, subsequently became my locker number. Don't know what it is about 228 and me. But at the time of the drawing, 228 was in the vast middle, not clear whether it would be drafted or not. As subsequent events played out after that first draft lottery night, numbers were generally safer than we had thought them to be as the draft wound down and fewer soldiers were called to Vietnam. That is uh, Steve. By the way, in the book, uh, there, there's a lot of talk about the draft numbers and uh, the draft numbers kind of this lottery of fate for the characters in the book and indeed everyone who experienced that draft lottery. Uh, so thanks for that, Steve. Keep those emails coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. This year marks the 157th anniversary of the largest massacre of Native Americans in the United States. Darren Perry, a relative of one of the survivors of the Berber Massacre in 1863, has written a new book to document the story. Perry is chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation. He grew up listening to his grandmother, Mae Timbimbu Perry, tell him the history of his people. When he went to school, the story he learned about Native Americans was very different. And he says it's important to him to share his grandmother's stories with a larger audience. Today on the program, Darren Perry joins me to talk about his book, The Bear River Massacre, A Shoshone History. Darren Perry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Congratulations on the book. It's a lot of work, I imagine. Oh my gosh, it took a few years, and it wasn't a full-time project, but it turned into one towards the end. So, <laughs> yeah, very blessed to get through it, let's put it that way. And it's not that long, so if you've taken the time to read it, you, it's just, there's a lot to it. So, Well, before we jump into this very interesting story, which involves your grandmother, you know, a great lady, and, and involves this very important history, uh, just a few words about our uh, silent drive. We... Uh, canceled our regular um, pledge drive, member drive, because of the COVID-19 and everything, uh, aren't able to do a regular drive. We're doing a, what we call a silent drive, 
which means we're not um, covering over programming. We want to bring you all of the latest news. This is a very important time, and we're doing our best to bring you all this news. Uh, but we do still need your support. And so here's how you can support us. UPR.org is the place to go. UPR.org uh, to support uh, all of this programming that you've come to rely on, including Access Utah. And Darren Perry, you have very generously made five of your books available for this purpose. Yes, I, I believe in your mission and, and NPR and Utah Public Radio. And so it's really important to me to uh, give back to the community and help in some way. So, yeah, I'm just honored to be able to do it. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate that. So, Darren Perry's book, The Bear River Massacre, Shoshone History, is just out. Uh, up to five of those, uh, each for a pledge of $120. So if you can... Uh, if you can afford that, $120 goes to to Utah Public Radio, supports the coverage that you've been hearing, COVID-19 and all the rest of the coverage. Um, just go to upr.org, upr.org, and make that uh, pledge. And uh, you'll need to, uh, because of the, the kind of the unusual circumstances, you'll need to write in your comments that you would like a copy of that book. The other thing is we won't be able to get the book right out to you, but we'll get it out to as soon as we can, given the unusual circumstances. But again, upr.org to uh, to pledge your support, and, and thank you very much. Um, so you have said, Darren Perry, that this is sort of unfinished business. From This is, in some ways, the book your grandmother, I guess, would have written. Yeah, and I think, you know, somebody asked me the other day, why did you write it? And uh, that was an easy answer. It was something that my grandmother wanted to do her whole life, and being able to uh, just sit at her feet for most of my youth, hear the stories that she told, and then uh, be able to grow up in that environment really uh, instilled in me the, a pride for my people. And so I seen her work tirelessly to not only tell the stories, but write the stories down. She was a product of the boarding school system. Um, but she used that, and, and it was a horrific system, but she used that as a way to get educated then continued her education when she got home at Barrower High School and then LDS Business College, where she earned her degree in English. So she started getting these notebooks and writing all of these stories down that I had heard from her personally. And so with the with the idea of writing a book one day, and then uh, as I told that person the other day, she just ran out of time. She got Parkinson's disease, and uh, she couldn't do her beadwork anymore, and so... Uh, I've got all those notebooks, and so just pouring all over that information that uh, she'd always told me orally, uh, I just thought, you know what, we need to make sure that her voice is heard. And it's uh, not only her voice, but the voice of her people, because it's a story that we don't have in our history books today. We don't learn about it in our curriculum at school, but I think it's important that we should. Uh, so you say your grandmother was was she went to those boarding schools, and the saying at the time was "kill the Indian to save the child," right? So she, I think the, she had that was the motto. Yes. So you were the 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 children weren't weren't allowed were punished if they spoke their language, right? If they referred in any way yes, to their culture. You're right. There's a lot of research out there too that a lot of those children disappeared completely, and they're finding unmarked graves at these schools of Indian children that were punished to the point of uh, losing their life. So 
that wasn't her case. And in her case, she went to San Bernardino, California. And uh, it, although it wasn't perfect, I think her experience was just a little better than most. But she did tell of having uh, being punished for talking about our culture in any way or speaking our language in any way. So, yeah, it, what a what a unique perspective that gave her down the road. Now, you write in the book, there's an old saying, uh, when an old Indian dies, uh, a library burns. Um, and, and in your grandmother's case, certainly certainly true, she was a storyteller, which was, you write, which is, is a, I guess, a cherished and honored position. Yes, it was. It was the keeper of the sacred things, the oral histories, and uh, the wintertime. We just had the 150th, 7th anniversary of the Bear River Massacre on January 29th near Preston. And uh, I like to tell people that the winter, you didn't hunt and gather like they had done all year round. And so the winter was spent in in your lodge with family, and it was the elders' time. What that meant was it was time for the children to sit down at their feet and learn. And so uh, she carried on that. She She talked about that, and she sat at the feet of her grandfather, who was Jaeger, uh, Tim Bimbu, who was 12 years old during the massacre, and who went by the name of Dabuzi. And so uh, before his conversion to the LDS Church, and then he took on the name of Jaeger. But So she sat at his feet. And if you can imagine all these oral stories uh, that the elders would tell was in their mind and in their hearts and head. And so if that information wasn't passed down to the youth, those stories could be lost forever. And so one thing that I really feel that my grandmother did that really saved our tribe and saved our life was she started writing down all of those oral stories and histories. And so we have a vast knowledge of of what our people thought and the creation story and other stories like that that really can bless and enrich people's lives today, and we wouldn't have. And that's why that statement, when an old Indian dies, a library burns, because it was all oral in those days. And so how blessed we are and how blessed I was to be able to learn that knowledge firsthand from a a woman who had served her whole life to uh, telling the story and being that storyteller. And so... Yeah, it's just a very wonderful thing that I've been able and blessed enough to sit down and and go through that because we don't do that today. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, but it's just kind of lost. Uh, we don't have those oral storytellers like we did, and and it's not because of them. I think it's just the day and age we live. Our youth and my kids don't have the patience or the time or effort to want to sit down and listen to those stories. And so thank goodness for a, a grandmother who had the foresight enough to literally save the history of her people. Hmm. I, I was charmed. Um, you, you, you say you spent a lot of time with your grandmother, um, you know, loved being with her and she would, she took this seriously. She would, she wanted to transmit these stories to you. She would stop in the telling, if your attention wandered, and I guess as a yeah. as a as a kid, <laughs> your attention is going to wander sometimes, right? Yes, absolutely. And and you know what? She told me that's what happened with her. So she sat at uh, 
with her and her siblings as they sat at uh, Jaeger's feet and heard those stories. She told me if they looked dissatisfied in any way or tired or yawned or did something, uh, he would quit. And he told her he would quit because what he was trying to tell them was so important. He wanted their attention because in oral history and storytelling, the record has to be accurate. Our children need to hear those stories as their elders had heard those stories. And so, yes, if you look disinterested in any way or looked away or anything like that, she would quit and, and we'd start again another day. Uh, and she'd do it out of love. She never got angry about it, but just taught in a way that um, we don't teach anymore, sadly. Mm-hmm. What What do you think we lose then? Because it, it is changing, right? Uh, thankfully, your grandmother wrote the stories down, but the oral tradition isn't as robust as it used to be. What do we lose with the, with that? I mean, think about it. We lose everything. We, we lose... <laughs> I, I tell people this, and... and this is so important to me. When you reduce data, uh, history, when you reduce history to just data, you forget about the spiritual spiritual or the emotional side of history. And that's really the part that makes history come alive and important. And so that's what you lose. You lose the ability to um, to connect, you know, and, and then history becomes boring because it's dates and facts and figures, and you don't get that spiritual or emotional connection that we all have, not just me. I mean, think about it. We all have grandparents. We all have older people in our lives that have lived a life that has been rich. We're going through something terrible today uh, with this pandemic, but I, I am positive if you were to interview your uh, grandparents and great-grandparents, the stories that they could tell about hardships uh, would really probably touch you in a way that um, is really hard to come close to in any other way. And so uh, we went to a dinner before all this hit down, my wife and I, and we walked in, and you could seat yourself at these tables, and she said, where would you like to sit? And there were people already there. But I said, I picked out a table with, older people. They were all elderly people. And she said, why do you want to sit there? And I said, because the vast knowledge that they have in their minds and brains, and we will hear a conversation at that table that will enrich our lives forever. And so uh, if, if people haven't done this now, if you have an older uh, elder in your family, and by elder, I mean our older people, uh, Sit down and record them, talk to them, have them tell stories of what it was like when they were a child, what it was like to go through hardships, because the Shoshones certainly went through hardships. But I think all of them to the person would tell you that those hardships uh, actually ended up being a blessing in their life in some way because it allowed them to grow. And so that's what we're missing today when we lose out on, on that oral history telling and oral storytelling. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, I want to get into the uh, <clears throat> the uh, Bear River Massacre from the perspective of the Shoshone. Uh, the book is The Bear River Massacre, Shoshone History. The author is Darren Perry. He is chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation, and uh, we'll have much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members 
and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting Utah's Red Rock wilderness lands. Details on SUWA and Protecting Wild Utah are at suwa.org. This is Science by the Slice. Earth's carbon is stored in plants and animals, the atmosphere, and the soil. And there's more carbon in soil than in plants, animals, and the atmosphere combined. Soil microbial respiration, that is, carbon dioxide release, plays a key role in global carbon cycling, says USU ecologist Bonnie Waring. She's created synthetic soil to study how long carbon remains in the soil and how much of it returns to the atmosphere. Her findings will aid prediction of how climate change affects soil and influences the carbon cycle. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This year marks the 157th anniversary of the largest massacre of Native Americans in the United States. Darren Perry, a relative of one of the survivors of the Bear River Massacre in 1863, has written a new book to document that story. And uh, the book is called The Bear River Massacre, a Shoshone History. Um, and uh, so we are talking about that on the program today. Darren Perry has made available five copies of his book for our listeners. Uh, we uh, canceled our regular uh, spring member drive, but we're uh, still... Uh, moving toward our goal and making good progress with our silent drive, quote-unquote, in which we're not interrupting programming, but uh, we're still coming to you and asking for your support. We still need that support and uh, to bring you all of the coverage that you've been receiving, COVID-19 and everything else that's been happening this very busy time. Extraordinary time. So here's how you can can, uh, uh, help your station out, the UPR, Utah Public Radio. Just go to upr.org, upr.org and uh, pledge in any amount that's comfortable for you. If you can pledge $120, uh, you can get uh, a copy of this uh, book, up to five books. Just put in the comment section online that you'd like the uh, the Darren Perry book, The Bear River Massacre of Shoshone History. Uh, upr.org. That's upr.org. And uh, thank you so much. We are making good progress. Still need to make more progress on our uh, silent spring drive. So, Thank you again, upr.org. So, Darren Perry, you want to um, read this brief quote from your book. You uh, quote Winston Churchill, history is written by the victors. You say that's, I guess that explains why Native American histories and perspectives have uh, rarely been written. And you say our voices need to be heard, not because Native Americans are necessarily looking to have things made right, although that fight's an important one, but because those who died at Bear River have a God-given right to be heard. That's That's a powerful statement. It is, and, and let me tell you, and one of the big reasons uh, that I say something like that is I, I've i lived in Davis County. I was born and raised in Syracuse, and and then uh, most recently we just moved to Providence. So I live here in Cache Valley. Cache Valley was so important to my people, but uh, it's just uh, important that that perspective is heard because to the, I mean, if I talk to a hundred people in the day, ninety-five may say 
we've heard about the massacre, but we don't really know anything about it. Well, that's troubling to me. We live within 20 miles of the largest massacre in the history of the U.S., uh, committed by Army troops, and it's not talked about, and we don't know anything about it. But there's so many lessons of life that can be learned from it. And, and one of those is uh, just how tragic things happen to people and how we respond to those events will determine our character mm. and who we are going to become down the road. But uh, it's just really important to me that that perspective is heard. You never learn. You never are able to fully grasp uh, something that's happened historically unless you get different perspectives on what happened. And then you're able to make a, an informed decision. And that's why I, I, I say that. It's, you know, we have a history that has been given from one side, and, and in many cases when it comes to the Bear River Massacre, it's not been given at all. But uh, our perspective is not heard. But even saying that, uh, as important as that is, our perspective is our perspective, and so... Uh, it's important that we learn from as many perspectives as we can get if we're going to make an informed decision on anything. And, and so that's that's kind of why I say that. Uh, so you set some context here. You wanted to do a little bit of context and get into the actual massacre. Uh, the Shoshone Nation was one of the largest, right? Uh, a lot of Shoshones in, in the area, you know, sort of a pre- European uh, encroachment uh, in, around the time of the, the, of the Mountain Men? Yes, in fact, it, it extended east of Colorado and then all the way west to California. So that whole Great Basin area and, and other parts were were dominated by the Shoshone Nation. And But if you can imagine 70,000, it just was too hard to sustain life as a large group like that when you lived a hunter-gathering lifestyle. So most of those groups broke up in family clans and family groups. And so um, the group that I'm a part of, the Northwestern Band, uh, were indigenous to the Salt Lake Valley. That would have been our southern border, all the way up to the Snake River in Pocatello, and then east to into Nevada, and then west, I mean, east into Colorado and Wyoming and west into Nevada. So that would have been our, our range and our gathering area. In fact, in the treaties of 1863 and 1868, the government ceded that area to the Northwestern Band as being where they were from. So, hmm. yeah, this is the heart. And so um, most of the quote-unquote white men, you know, were passing through, right? Or uh, uh, then arrived the, the, you know, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, the Mormons, and they aim to settle. So then, predictably, conflict uh, sure. and arrived. So, I mean, our chief, Sagwich, was born in 1822, So, which tells you there he never knew a time in his life without the white man. But those trappers and mountain men uh, had a wonderful relationship with the natives. It was a, a give and take. And so uh, the natives would provide them with skins and other things, and the natives would get back knives and pots and pans that would make life much easier for them, and and then they'd leave. But I think uh, Sackwich traveled to Salt Lake City two days after the Saints got to the valley to meet 
with Brigham Young and that first group of pioneers. I don't know, and we don't have an oral history that says that, but I'm sure he was very curious as to what their intentions were. And I think it became clear to him that uh, they were different from the mountain men that would always come and go. And uh, But still, even, even with all that knowledge, uh, Sagwich and our band did everything they could to welcome the, the pioneers and try to get along in as good as they could. Uh, not knowing what that really meant. Because, you know, if it would have been limited to that first group of pioneers, there would have been plenty of room for everyone. But as more and more saints came and the resources began to be depleted, especially here in 1855 and 56 when Peter Mond showed up, that completely changed the Shoshone's uh, way of life because of the loss of those resources. If you just joined us, we're talking with Darren Perry. Uh, he is chairman of the Northwestern Band of Shoshone Nation. His new book is The Bear River Massacre, a Shoshone History. You're welcome to join this conversation with your question or comment by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You could call us as well, 800-826-1495, 800 um, So, you know, this, some skirmishes, right? There were some um, some Indians who would would... Uh, would steal to, uh, to subsist. Um, and so what, what was the immediate, um, I guess the, the immediate, uh, lead up to the, to the massacre the the, uh, the Latter-day Saints settlers reached out for the army. Did they, they said, we want to, want to, to settle things or what, what did they want? Sure. And, and, you know, there were a few things that people point to that really led to it. But at the end of the day, the Shoshone people who only knew a hunter-gatherer lifestyle now had fences and cattle and pioneers who had no concept of the way the Shoshone lived. Natives didn't have a concept of personal property. So if a family was in need and then they, they saw a cow out in the field, it was a pioneer family, they would take it if their family was starving. So you have two different cultures living two different lifestyles and uh, the Shoshone's not really understanding the other, but there were skirmishes. The Shoshone, our band, was led by other chiefs as well, Bear Hunter, Pocatello. Those chiefs were not quite as welcoming to the pioneers and would often steal horses and other things. So you have that. You have the California and Oregon trails cutting through the heart of Shoshone land immigrants that were making their way to the West Coast to find their fortune, and often skirmishes broke out there. And so now you have um, the Mormon pioneers that were here really struggling to make a life for themselves. They're removed from Salt Lake City, the capital where Brigham Young uh, was safe in the confines of downtown Salt Lake, and and he was, he'd always preached that it was easier to feed the Indians than fight them. But he didn't have to live remotely, you know, 80 miles away from Salt Lake City, out by yourself with your family and and having Indian depredations taking place. So letters began being written by the saints to Salt Lake to somehow take care of the Indian problem. And I'm going to cut them a little slack here and I don't think they envisioned a wholesale massacre of my people. The government at that time were moving natives around, 
Trail of Tears and other things, and maybe they just wanted them to be moved out and, and gone away. But uh, those letters found their way to a federal judge in Salt Lake who issued arrest warrants for Sagwich, Bear Hunter, Pocatello, and Sandpitch. And so those arrest warrants made their way up to Camp Douglas, where Colonel Patrick Edward Connor and his California volunteers were stationed. And so that's what led to it. That's what got the Army in motion. And the Army were there to babysit the Mormons. They weren't happy. They hated the Mormons. And the Mormons didn't like them there either. But now they had a chance to fight. They'd signed up to fight in the Civil War and were not stationed there. And so uh, Connor made a few statements that he was he would go north, but he wasn't going to arrest anyone. He was going to kill every man, woman, and child. Then he said, I'm not going to deprive my men a little joy of from Indian killing. So there was absolutely, we knew what his intent was before he left Salt Lake City. And so uh, the Army was summoned and made their way north uh, four days prior to January 29th and arrived at the bluff in the morning, early morning hours of January 29th in 1863. And this is, uh, you know, if we live in northern Utah, you're probably familiar with this. You're driving past this site anyway, near Franklin, right? Um, yes, it's, uh, it's just north. It's just two miles north of Preston, Idaho today. Preston wouldn't have been there then, and Franklin would have been the closest LDS community. Mm-hmm. So the, the this group of soldiers shows up. This is a winter encampment. Um and uh, and then how does it proceed from there? Well, they were led by uh, a famous Mormon scout named Porter Rockwell. He'd signed up in Salt Lake to lead the men. He knew where they were encamped, and he led them for $5. And so they showed up on the, the bluff uh, just overlooking the massacre site today on the early morning hours of January 29th. And uh, Sagwich was up. He looked outside and surveyed the area. He saw a steaming mist, maybe just a mile to the south up on the bluff, and he really didn't realize what it was. And what he could see was the steam from the horses. They'd been traveling all night. The feet, the snow, according to settlers, was about four feet deep. Uh, the horses were having a hard time. It was below zero, so every time the horse would breathe, it would let out a puff of steam, and so that's the steam he could see, the cloud. But that cloud started moving down the bluff, and then he realized what was taking place. Uh, the troops from Camp Douglas had arrived, and he woke everyone up that morning and, and told them to prepare. He thought that he might be able to negotiate a peaceful settlement. He'd had run-ins with McGarry and some of Connor's men earlier uh, throughout the year. And he said the military would parade around and shoot their rifles, but nothing ever really happened. And so he was hoping that he'd be able to negotiate some kind of settlement and parlay with the Army. But as the Army got closer and began to ford the river, they began to fire upon the Shoshones. And my grandmother said some of the Indian women were so excited they picked up their woven willow basket to use as shields. And from that point on, 
The Army said 18 soldiers died, 17 or 18, depending on which account you read. Almost every one of those died with that first push by the Army. And it's significant because the Shoshones had very few weapons to fight with. Um, some of them probably had rifles, but very few bullets. And so bows and arrows and sticks and clubs and tomahawks would have been the weapon of choice then. But after that first rush, almost every weapon that they'd had at their disposal would have been discharged. And so maybe what turned in, uh, that was a battle for 15 minutes, quickly turned into a wholesale massacre once the Shoshones had expanded all their uh, resources. So, And uh, it, it's, it's just, just, just horrifying. Um, you know, people tried to escape across the river, right? Some did, but many more drowned, right? Yes, it was, it was, Sackwich said the river was frozen earlier that morning, but then started to flow. And a lot of the the women were trying to jump in and even men trying to jump into the river to escape. After that first onslaught, the army pulled back and flanked the Shoshones. One group went, uh, West and one group went east, got around behind them, and then pushed them to the river's edge to where the, the real killing commenced. And the massacre uh, really took off in, in wholesale form. And so a lot of the women, and, and you might ask yourselves, and, and those listening might say, well, how could they jump into the river? It's below zero. Uh, it's cold. That's sure death for sure. But the reason that Shoshone's camp there was because of the many hot springs that are along the edge of that river. And where their encampment was, there was a, a significant hot spring on that part of the river. And so by jumping into the river didn't automatically mean that they were going to freeze to death. There were places and pockets along that river and overhanging banks by those hot springs where people could go and uh, and actually survive in the water for quite some time. And and some of them did. Sagwich rode his horse across the river and escaped. Hmm. Uh, as someone held the another man escaped by holding the uh, tail of the horse that Sagwich rode across the river. So uh, there's there, there's a horrifying story just struck me. Uh, a woman, I guess, a group of women and children are hiding under some willows near or in the river. Her baby starts to cry, and so she drowns it. Yeah, to, to prevent fact, them being her was, located. Her name, her name was Anzi Chi, and uh, Anzi Chi was a young mother at the time, and she ran. She told of being chased by the soldiers with her newborn, and she jumped into the river, and she didn't swim into the willows. She swam under an overhanging bank that was there, that was quite large. And as she got there, she found herself there with about ten other women who'd have the same idea. But they could hear the soldiers talking on the bank above them, wondering where they'd gone. And then Angie Chi, uh, as a young mother, and and she she told my grandmother these stories at Washakie, the old Indian community, years later, as an older woman now. She told this story and showed the children at Washakie the seven bullet wounds that she'd received before jumping into the river. But then she told of having to drown her own baby in the river that day because the baby started to cry. Mm. And she was afraid that it would give up the location of the other 10 women that were there with her. So horrific stories of 
of women who were trying to save their children and other things and uh, that would have forever been lost had we not had the my grandmother not had the really the foresight to start writing that stuff down. So what a blessing it's been. And your your ancestor, uh, who who I guess renamed himself later Jaeger, right? Yeah, uh, he was a he was a boy at the time, and I I think uh, several uh, of the of the uh, young people were advised, uh, you know, go lay amongst the dead and, and play dead. Yes, Jaeger was twelve, uh, approximately twelve. His dad was Sagwich, the chief. So Sagwich would be my third great grandfather. Jaeger would be my second great-grandfather. But he found himself in a grass teepee with his grandmother who suggested that they go outside and lay among the dead. She figured that would be the only way that they were going to survive. And so she did. They snuck out and laid among the dead. He said he laid there for about two hours until the fighting was almost over. And then, because he was a curious boy, he began to look around and a lot of the soldiers were moving among the Indians uh, to find those who were still alive and putting them out of their misery. And Jaeger found himself uh, eye to eye with a soldier. They'd made eye contact, and the soldier came over and put his gun to Jaeger's head. And then, uh, after a few intense moments, walked away. And then Jaeger says uh, he returned and put his gun up again and walked away and then did it for the third time. And he said, he tells the story that I thought I was done for then. And then the soldier turned and walked away for good. And uh, my grandmother always told me, she always said, a power beyond our comprehension stopped that soldier from killing Jaeger so that the true story of the massacre could be written. And so... I often think about that. I think about what if Jaeger would have died? What if what if almost all of them would have died? We wouldn't know the stories. We wouldn't know where the massacre actually happened. Jaeger took my grandmother there all the time, and they'd sit on the bluff that overlooked the massacre, uh, where we're going to build this interpretive center here down the road. And, and he would say, that's where the lodges were, and that's where I played dead, and that's where the soldiers flanked the people and and so because of his survival and because of the stories that he told we now have a rich history that i think has has blessed our tribe and other people who read the book uh bless their lives forever because it gives them a perspective that uh, would have been lost had had jaeger not survived well, take another break. When we come back, maybe talk about this, the the aftermath and, and what this means. Um, but but you think about it, this this I didn't know this was the largest massacre of Native Americans in the United States. And, you know, I'm living here in Cache Valley. Um, you know, I, I was familiar with Wounded Knee and Sand Creek, but uh, not in, in vaguely aware of, of the Bear River Massacre. Um but uh, well-known, I guess, among among the Shoshone people, right? Well-known, and, you know, Sand Creek, I had 125, 130 Native Americans that died. And, and you don't want to get into the numbers, because all those massacres are horrific. But they pale in comparison with the, the amount. And I have a, after the break, I, I have a hunch on 
why we don't know more about it and why it's kind of been forgotten. But, uh, yeah, history's, history's complicated for sure. Well, let's, let's hold that. Yes, thank you for that excellent tease. That's your, your, you're a good radio person. Um, so we'll, we'll keep the listeners, uh, on, on, on tender hooks here. We're talking with, uh, Darren Perry, uh, chairman of the Northwestern band of the Shoshone nation. Uh, he grew up listening to his grandmother, May Timbimbu Berry, uh, tell him the history of his people. Then he went to school and the story he learned about Native Americans was very different. And he's written a book, the Bear River Massacre Shoshone History. We'll continue this conversation following this break. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Over the past several weeks, UPR and NPR have had to make significant changes to our production workflow while still serving listeners in new ways. You've heard this on the air, especially as our different programs and daily news and talk programs responded quickly to cover the coronavirus crisis. For example, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is not planning any changes in the scheduling of new and repeated shows while under quarantine, but they have stopped recording in front of a live audience. So as a result, the show will sound different. No audience means no applause and laughs. So we're encouraging you to provide your own laughter or groans at home. And during this time, Wait, Wait promises to maintain its standard level of quality, a good solid C+. We're proud to be partnering with you to keep us all informed, enriched, and entertained. And we encourage you to support Utah Public Radio by going to our website and contributing online at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Darren Perry. He's chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation, and he's written a new book. It's called The Bear River Massacre, A Shoshone History. We're talking about that on the program today. Darren Perry has generously made available five copies of his book for uh, our listeners, for you, uh, for your pledge of support of $120. Uh, we have changed our uh, member drive, which was scheduled for about this time because, of course, of all of the changes happening with COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic. But we still need your support, and so we're conducting uh, an ongoing, uh, quote-unquote, silent drive where we're not interrupting any programming. Uh, we want to bring you all the latest news, uh, keep you up to date, and provide the best service that we possibly can for you. But we uh, do want to uh, let you know that we uh, still need uh, your support. And so a uh, fast and easy way that you can do that, hope that you will, just go to our website, upr.org. So we're not taking phone calls. We're, we can't have volunteers in. In fact, uh, Darren Perry would have been in studio with me, but uh, COVID-19, social distancing, he's on the phone with us. But you can go to our website and, uh, and pledge your support there, upr.org, upr.org. And if you'd like a copy of the book and can pledge $120, just in your comment section, uh, indicate that you would like a copy of the book. We thank uh, Darren Perry for his generosity there. UPR.org. Uh, UPR.org is the place to, to go. So, Darren Perry, you, uh, you uh, said before the break that you, you have a theory as to why perhaps the River Massacre is not as well known. I do, and, and, and it's just following me here for a second. I, you know, the Saints were here, and... and while the Saints did not fire one shot and participate in the massacre in any way that way, they were absolutely the cause of the massacre. 
And, and so, look, I'm a sixth-generation Shoshone Latter-day Saint. I, I am one of the the, the saints. So, um, but they were absolutely the cause of the massacre by their presence, by their presence and taking the resources the Shoshones needed. They had had it. They could farm. They could. They were agriculturists and, and ranchers. We didn't know that lifestyle. We only knew the hunter-gathering lifestyle. And when those resources are depleted, uh, because the pioneers were competing for those too, uh, they were absolutely the cause of the massacre, even though they didn't participate in it. So I had an old woman, an older lady one time, talk to me after a, a talk I'd given at an LDS Stake Center here in Logan last year. And she said to me, uh, after the lecture, she said, we were told never to talk about it ever again. And she said, my father told me about the, what had happened, and we were told never to discuss it. And so I thought, well, here I think that the pioneers absolutely wanted the Indian problem to go away. And we have statements from local uh, leaders Henry Ballard, who was a bishop of the Logan First Ward, made comments that that a massacre was an intervention from our Heavenly Father, and, and other statements like that from local leaders. So they absolutely wanted the pro- problem to go away. I don't think they envisioned a wholesale massacre of what they actually came about. Uh, there were a few settlers that were allowed to go there the day after the massacre, and, and the what they wrote in their journals was just horrific. How bodies were eight deep in some places. They counted more than 400 dead, two thirds of them being women and children. So I don't think, you know, when you make the statement, Hey, take care of this problem. And then somebody takes care of it in a way that there's no way you would have signed off on. I think it becomes something that you just don't talk about from that point on that. And the, the civil war was raging uh, the news of the day was back east and in San Francisco. It just wasn't, uh, it was the Wild West. And so things like that happened all the time in the Wild West. So uh, not much news, I suppose, at the end of the day. We just have about five minutes left. Uh, I want to uh, take a look at the different perspectives and then close with what this means to the Shoshone uh, people. You quote uh, historian David Lewis. He said, history doesn't always affirm us. Sometimes history challenges us to think about an an uglier past than we would rather not have. But that's really the power and benefit of history. It connects us to the past. It connects us to our humanity and our inhumanity. And it offers us a way to move forward to a new relationship. That is the 21st century relationship based on respect. Respect for truth and what happened in that past moment. That's when you get to the possibility of reconciliation. So I wonder what you do in the book. You compare and contrast the, uh, there's a 1932 plaque, which is that, is it still up there uh, off the highway? It which, is. Uh, and so the, the people of Franklin County erected a monument there in 1932. The first plaque in 32 talks about the number of killed. See, Connor always put the number around 235 because he only counted the men. And he didn't even count the men. He called them bucks. So he he didn't even acknowledge them as being human. So that's why the number over his history has been such a low number. 
20 years after the 32 plaque, though, the Daughters of Utah Pioneers put up a different plaque that talked about the brave soldiers and the wonderful pioneer women who took care of them after the massacre. And so that's the narrative that is at the monument today. It's it's a monument meant to remember what happened that day, but lost in that whole thing with those two plaques is the narrative of my people. Uh, we're absent from it. And so, um, but good news, uh, the, the local leader, uh, the chapter, the national chairman, a woman from the DUP, has agreed to take that plaque down and has agreed to put up a new plaque that tells more of the history of really what happened that day. And I just learned that a couple of weeks ago. So I think they're acknowledging that, hey, some of the things that uh, we celebrated and wrote about back then weren't that accurate now that we know more. Uh They're just trying to make it right, and and I applaud them for that. And there's going to be an interpretive center, right? The Shoshone Nation is going to put something up there? Yes. uh, Two years ago, we were blessed to raise $2 million to purchase all of the Bear River Massacre site. And I think over all this time, we've been able to purchase about just short of 700 acres of that sacred land. None of the bodies were buried. They're still under the surface. And so... Uh, I have been on a fundraising campaign the last uh, year and a half to raise an additional $6 million to build a beautiful interpretive center on the site that tells the story, all of the story, from the coming of the pioneers to uh, the aftermath and what happened after, and even 10 years after that, and a lot of the survivors ended up joining the LDS Church. But it's all history, and it's all important, and it, and it all... Uh, comes together in this wonderful book that I wrote, and, and just telling the story from our unique perspective. So, uh, yeah, we're just really blessed to be a part of it. I'm still raising money. I'm about halfway there. And so, uh, yeah, we're just continuing to, to plow on. One correction I wanted to make, and I, I'm sorry I didn't talk to you about this before. I I stepped down as chairman last week. And so I'm still a tribal council member, still on the, uh, we have a seven-member council, but I'm uh, running for Congress this year, and I just felt it was important that when I speak, and if I'm out on the political campaign, that I'm not, when I say something, that it might, I don't want it being interpreted as that's the voice of the Shoshone Nation. And so uh, currently, I just stepped down as the chairman, but nothing else has changed. I'm still out telling the stories. I'm still, I guess, lecturing everywhere, and I'm still trying to raise the money for that beautiful interpretive center. So, okay. Well, 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 former chairman, I guess, uh, down there. Thank you for yeah. that uh, correction. Um, so um, I guess just a couple of minutes left here. Uh, quickly, we can help you out. How, how do people get a hold of you if they want to donate to the interpretive center? Well, if, if you can't remember anything I'm about to tell you, contact you, and you can get me the information. But we have a website called boogai.org. It's B-O-A-O-G-O-I.org. And that pulls up a one website of pictures and history, and it gives you an online donation capability there to do that. Donate online. It's a secure uh, website that you can do that. Uh, or you can mail a check to our tribal office in Brigham City. Okay. Um, but 
Uh, people can still give. We're still raising money. We're breaking ground July 31st if all this craziness goes away. Uh, and I hope to have thousands there at the groundbreaking. It'll be a really uh, wonderful opportunity to get together and, and celebrate. Well, final question, You just 30 seconds for this. Do you, do you think your grandmother would be pleased with the book? I hope so, and I've had a lot of people tell me that she would. And so that uh, as I got through it and uh, I looked it over and, and I thought, you know what, and a lot of it's her. The, the chapter on the massacre uh, was her writing, uh, almost word for word, except where I've thrown in quotes from the settlers that were in the area. And so I think she's probably smiling from her place in in heaven and so uh i'm just honored to be able to be a part of something that she started and that she once felt so strongly about and she dedicated her life to it and just hopefully uh, carrying on her legacy in some small way well the book is the bear river massacre a shoshone history uh, darren perry is the author he's joined us for the hour thank you so much my pleasure tom and uh, let's talk again soon okay let's do And thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. In these unprecedented times, Utah Public Radio and NPR's commitment to you is unchanged. We're reporting the news and keeping you connected to your community and the world. Your donations keep us going. Commit to trustworthy news by making a donation. Visit upr.org.